Gotcha. Welcome back, listeners. This is Who Needs Healthcare. I'm Anthony Marty. With me, as always, Zach Wilkerson. What it do? Oh, man, we're back. We had a little break, but we're back now, and we're here to talk about one of our one of our favorite things. That's right, legislation. Mm. So what are we going to talk about today, Zach? Um, so we got a little two-parter lined up. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about the recent Right to Try Act that was passed, uh, I believe, on May 29th. Um, going a little bit into that, and then on the back half, we will talk about the new um, proposal by the Trump administration to lower prescription drug costs um, under the title of American Patients First. Absolutely. But before we get into that, we're forgetting something. What is it? Zach Longoria Project. We are back, and like we said in the intro, we are going to start with the Right to Try Act, which is a bill that passed Congress on May 29th, as Zach said, and this is a bill that was backed by the President, Donald Trump, which would give terminally ill patients the right to seek drug treatments that remain in clinical trials and have passed Phase 1 trials for the FDA approval process, but have not been fully approved by the FDA as they still have not passed Phases 2 or 3. However... The thought process is if you've passed phase one, then your next step is uh, human studies, which, as we've said in previous episodes when we've explained the approval process, um, the, the, the idea is that if the medication is approved for human studies, then a terminally ill patient should have the right to access it as a last resort, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this sounds like a very new and novel concept, but as we learned, uh, this has actually already existed in the majority of states in the United States, right? Yeah, well, not only is the, are there already right to try um, acts in 38 states, but there are also similar procedures to get access to experimental or um, unapproved drugs through the FDA already. Like those channels already exist. Um, I can't remember exactly what they're called. I I was reading a little bit about it, but the the The, process is a little different, but it's kind of already there in some form. Yeah. um, Emergency requests already exist. in, like you said, 38 states, and I was actually pretty surprised when I was reading about it that there are pretty speedy processes already. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the arguments that opponents to the bill have, saying that it really won't change much, but the when you think of the cost-benefit analysis, could have detrimental effects on how FDA safeguards, uh, I guess, get regulated in terms of the health of the public. And yeah. why is that? Yeah, well, like one of the big detractors that I think probably the biggest um, kind of um, argument against this is the idea that um, either 
indirectly or purposefully, it kind of stands to undercut the FDA, um, remove some of its power as a regulatory body, um, and, and kind of just in general undermine the whole regulatory process. Right. And I think, you know, opponents are citing this. However, this is backed by the FDA. So when they say that it's undercutting the regulatory process, it's really undercutting what we've known the regulatory process to be like. However, it is establishing what the Trump administration wants the regulatory process to look like going forward, right? Yeah. Is it backed by the FDA? I wasn't under that impression. Scott Gottlieb? I believe so. And it's backed by Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who oversees the FDA. Okay, I guess I, I guess, well, okay, so I guess you're kind of getting into, like, the, there's, like, the, the people who are in control of the FDA right now. Okay, that, I guess that makes sense. Um, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, I mean. It, to re- I guess I wasn't really thinking about it like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Because I, I guess the majority of the arguments I've seen against this, the more extreme ones kind of claim that, like, the fear that this is the beginning of a kind of more targeted attack against the FDA as a entity. Um, and so it's kind of weird to think about people within the FDA being responsible for that. But I, I mean, I guess that is like this, you know, it could be that, you know, that that is, if that is true, you know, that doesn't necessarily preclude that, preclude that from being uh, being true. Well, it's kind of like what we saw with, um, and his name is escaping me, but uh, with the EPA, you know, Right, when you say something's yeah, backed exactly. by the EPA, it's being backed by the head, who was appointed by the president. Um, however, the general feeling of the, AP, of the EPA would probably be against a lot of the deregulation that's going on there, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. I think that's kind of like why I was, I was thinking about it in that broader general sense, but you're, you're correct. In the very true and literal sense, yeah, the head of the FDA is, is backing this, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I guess another argument when it says, uh, another, I guess, popular argument is basically that it is allowing patients to access medications with little or no knowledge of the efficacy and the side effect profile. So when you think about it, um, you know, after phase one trials, you don't have a lot of information about it, about the medications, because they're, you know, still experimental. They haven't been tried on humans yet. Uh, or they're in the process of being tried on humans, so you really haven't gotten the outcomes yet to see. Yeah, you've maybe what had happens. like a handful of of human trials at that point. Right. And, right. Yeah. Um, and then, but you know, likewise, if you think about it, uh, supporters on the other hand would say that uh, the legislation is needed because these are we're talking about the most terminal patients. These aren't just you know people who are in the ER for whatever reason. And if they are too sick to be selected for uh, to participate in clinical trials, then it might take too long for these promising treatments to be approved before they can access them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, for, as we know, in the clinical trial process, you don't always pick, and actually very rarely pick, the most sick and ill patients. Right? No, in fact, like rarely, you you rarely would. And uh, do you want to explain the why? Can... Yeah, do you explain why? Well, that, because that um, it introduces a lot of variables to the 
to the whole process because you know it's hard to parse out potential adverse side effects and things from you know the disease state you run the potential of the you know not to be morbid but the patient passing away during the course of the the study which would kind of um you know prevent them from being able to gain any clinical data from that um mostly i think it's just like the variability that it introduces right and like you're saying like it's difficult to gain any clinical uh data from that and it also introduces the opportunity to gain uh misinformed clinical data so or misdirected so you might think a certain there or certain experimental medication has um a number of side effects that aren't actually a cause of the treatment itself but of all these other variables that the patient walks into prior to trying the medication or um that the patient develops during the treatment due to other outside factors Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like that's one thing, you know, this definitely isn't the case of trying to basically gain extra test subjects because I actually read that um, under the specifics of the bill um, or of the act, you the FDA can't actually use any data whatsoever that they could even collect from these patients. Um, that That is... Um, not allowed under the under the confines of this so even if there was some information you know like the patient experienced certain side effects while taking this medication or they 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 wouldn't be able to include any of that in their approval uh process right and how do you feel about that honestly it's probably for the at first i heard that and i thought well that doesn't sound good but then the more i thought about it i think it's probably for the best because it eliminates um maybe potentially getting subjects under like less scrupulous means or like rationale. Um, it's probably, it's probably for the best because it D it disincentivizes the FDA and the drug manufacturers to some degree, I think, um, on one hand, I think where the bigger problem is, um, the risk for like financial exploitation, because I, I'm, it's under, I may be misunderstood, but I, don't I mean the patients aren't getting these drugs for free? They still have to pay for them, right? Um, um, I I actually didn't see much about that about the financial implications and how the drugs are acquired. So. I saw some concerns about um, about potentially um, exploiting patients by having them pay for like costly medications that don't have any issue and any. They, I guess that it was being talked about more under the article I was reading was talking about um, like recent stem cell treatments that aren't 100% approved, but certain clinics are offering procedures and kind of exploiting patients through that um, financially. But I, I don't know. That's something to look into more. I think if that that opens up a whole other issue in terms of like how these are being paid for. Yeah, and here's the thing, that when a patient is part of a clinical trial, they don't pay for the medication. But we have to right. remember that these patients aren't part of a clinical trial. And exactly. so when they say that the results of these uh, patients, you know, practicing under the Right to Try Act, that they don't, their data doesn't get included in the clinical trial data, um, you know, a lot of opponents were citing that as a uh, missed opportunity um for for i guess in in this bill but 
for me, I think this is a poor argument because the reality is is that you're not having you're not going to get a big enough population to really glean a um, a solid database uh, to I guess pr to be able to differentiate outcomes. Likewise, you don't have a placebo group or a control group here, right? So you're just mm -hmm. giving it to this patient in hopes that it works. And so, you know, the bottom line is, you know, at least the way I see it, no person is being forced to take any of these investigational drugs. Um, no doctor is going to be forced to request the investigational drugs. And no drug company is being forced to provide an investigational drug um, that's if a, they don't that's think a that's really good right point. fit. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point because that's, you know, I think a key aspect of this is even though it's called the right to try, um, the act doesn't um, bestow any actual true right because there's no imposition on anyone to follow through with it. Like you, this act does not give someone the right to try whatever experimental medication they want. Um, like a, like you said, a, a manufacturer doesn't have to. Yeah, if, do this. if they and don't feel cases, comfortable with it, or if they don't yeah, feel exactly. the, the investigational drug, if they don't feel, feel like it's a, fi a right fit for the patient, then there's no reason to put the patient at extra risk, at undue right. harm, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so I, I mean, basically, um, if the FDA says that the drug is safe enough to be used on trials in humans, then it's safe enough to be used on a dying person, uh, or for a dying person to make their own choice on whether or not they would like to try it. And uh, that's pretty much the bottom line, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And so I think, you know, this is not, I mean, ultimately, like, I think it's probably a good thing that at least is it is an option. And, um, but like, like most of these things, there's, you know, there's some trepidation around it, some potential misuse, and it'll just be interesting to see. Um see how it gets handled long term or see even how much it gets utilized really well and also to be honest this isn't as novel as i feel like the mass media is making it out to be like we said yeah, 38 states really already have it so yeah exactly it's really just making this it's really just increasing this access uh for you know as a last resort for patients in those 12 states that don't have this option already yeah so yeah so that is i think i think that's we wrapped up the right triac. There's nothing else really on there, right? There's really not, no. All right. Well, in that case, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back with the American Patients First report. We're back, um, and as Marty alluded to, we're going to talk a little bit about the American Patients First proposal, which was released uh, last month in May. Um, it's a new proposal by the Trump administration to lower drug prices and reduce out-of-pocket costs to patients. Um, and it begins, um, It's a anybody can go online and pull this up. It's a 44-page document, um, pretty pretty 
breezy read i think in general <laughs> i mean com- considering what it's talking about and actually they also give a lot of background information too they do and there's actually some pretty good resources um there's a really nice infographic for how the whole payment system works which which is pretty nice um but it opens up with this you know juicy donald j trump quote um one of my greatest priorities is to reduce the price of prescription drugs. In many other countries, these drug costs far less than what we pay in the United States. That is why I have directed my administration to make fixing the injustice of high drug prices one of our top priorities. Prices will come down. So let me interject real quick. So we're obviously going to get, I think, more into this uh, as you know, further in the episode. But he's not wrong in saying that a lot of the drugs that are even manufactured here cost less overseas than they do in the United States. And there's a pretty stark reason why that is. And we'll get to that, I guess, when we when we get to that section. Yeah, but, it actually ties in a little bit to first the first part of the of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this proposal was kind of broken down into two sections with four subsections each. And it's uh immediate actions and I think the they uh, called it further considerations or further actions. What was yeah, that? yeah, I think further, uh, yeah, something like that. Something like that. And so basically the immediate actions are exactly as they sound. They're going to be um, ways that the Trump administration and the White House can start tackling these high prescription drug prices today. And then the further ones are more proposals that are going to be put under consideration and that they're going to be um, soliciting feedback and input before they make uh, before they make you know solid yeah. actionable it, moves. It really is just like short term, long term, really. Exactly. So yeah. the four sections are improved competition, better negotiation, incentives for lower list prices, and lowering out of pocket costs. So I think we're going to start with the first one, which is improved competition. Do you want to tee us off? Yeah, yeah. So um, there are three immediate actions listed in this plan. Um, one involves um, preventing what he what it refers to as manufacturer gaming of the regulatory process, um, and it includes an example of that of um, risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, which is really interesting. I want to get into that a little bit more in a minute. Um, that's also, I, we'll probably refer to that as RIMS cause that's what it's more traditionally referred to. And it's a lot easier to say, um, the next one is measures to promote innovation and competition for biologics, which biologics are just, um, medications that come from a biological source, um, as the name kind of suggests. So, um, like immunotherapies, um, I don't know what that's like the big one that I think of is like, um, yeah, it's your monoclonal antibodies. Exactly. uh, Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. That's really, they're disrupting in some, in, you know, for most part a good way, but they're disrupting the current, uh, I think, um, understanding and, uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for protocol for a lot of, uh, treatments. So yeah. Yeah. And like drug pricing in general, like they're astronomically more expensive than traditional medications. Yeah. So it's kind of a big market disruptor. Um, and then the third part is developing proposals to stop Medicaid and affordable care act programs from raising prices in the private market. So without, let's see, just since for the sake of, uh, 
time, let's just pick a few of these and go through. So yeah. with well, the uh, e- oh, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Well, I was just say, um, what's one you want to talk about? I mean, the rims thing is really interesting to me um, because it's my understanding that rims is a really good thing. Like it's a protective measure for the patient. Usually, they involve really high risk medications with. Um, high profile side effects sometimes you know highly potentially fatal side effects and so these are regulations that are placed on a medication to um basically make sure that they're used appropriately and and in the right patient population right so so i've never really thought about that as a way that manufacturers kind of game the system in order to make their price their drugs more expensive or or retain exclusivity longer but but i don't know do you do you have any insight on that the the i guess uh one area where i can see that and uh one area where i can see that rems might attribute to that is that because if you're going to develop a drug a generic drug for a rems a a drug that if you're, all right, let me start over. If you're going to develop a drug that falls under the REMS, a REMS program, right? Because different drugs that are, you know, have these qualifications all have their own REMS program. And if you are going to mm-hmm. develop a drug that falls under a REMS program, there is a higher, co- there's a higher barrier, of, barrier to entry to financially and, you know, in terms of the bandwidth of the manufacturer as well in order to get this product out in the market. Likewise, at the same time, when you're talking about REMS program or drugs that are under the REMS program, um, you know you have to have uh, practitioners. So you have to have your the healthcare providers as well as the pharmacies participating in the REMS program. And in order to do that, there are there's basically there's extra paperwork, there's extra time they have to spend making sure the patients are are doing everything according to the REMS program. So you're actually decreasing access as well. So you have a smaller pool. Um, delivering your medications out as well as the higher cost of, or barrier to entry. So I think that that would, you know, the higher barrier to entry would keep some competition out because they might not have the bandwidth or the resources to commit to that long-term. And then likewise, um, if... Oh, I see what you're saying. So it's like if, if one company makes a drug that is a REMS drug, then that means that all other competitors would also have to go through the REMS program. Is that kind of what well, right. Like if you're going to make, and if that's you're, like cost prohibitive. So without, I guess, naming specific drugs, but if you're going to make a drug that, uh, like a drug that is a REMS program drug, like thalidomide, then, you know, if I make thalidomide and I'm a generic manufacturer, or if I'm the branded manufacturer, then you as a potential generic manufacturer of the same product, you still have to have a REMS program and you have to, you have to be able to maintain your own REMS program. And then on top of that, um, all the programs, all the manufacturers that manufacture the same medication, they also have to kind of work together as well. So there's just a lot more bandwidth that goes into that, that not every manufacturer would have uh, the resources to commit to, right? Mm-hmm. And that costs money. And so I don't know that this is, they were kind of vague in terms of how they, how this uh, proposal talked about this. But when I was reading it, that was the only real, uh, that was the, I guess, the biggest uh, standout to me. Okay, that makes sense. That makes more sense. But that's still, that's really interesting to me because, um, 
because if I'm the brain, think this: if I'm the brain manufacturer and I have a REMS program, and my REMS program is very expensive or very exclusive, and you want to be a generic manufacturer, but you have to comply to my to the REMS program that I have set up through with the FDA, well, that could keep you out, right? You yeah, might just think true. I don't want to I don't want to commit to that. That's too much. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. But I think that's going to be really hard to parse out with like when a medication legitimately re- needs a REMS program or REMS type regulations to for like patient protection essentially um, versus a time when maybe it's being used unethically or to you know to keep exclusivity longer or to to kind of keep a monopoly going. Right, and I might be showing my ignorance here, but. Uh... I don't know that this is necessarily a that this is an issue that's going to change um, drug pricing. You know, it's not going to move the needle in my eyes. I don't mm-hmm. think that this is something that's being exploited to the extent that it needed to be kind of at the top of this proposal, right? Yeah, yeah. It was just interesting to me that like first thing out of the gate, it's just right there. Yeah, um, rims are bad. Um, so. I think they're yeah. yeah. I think later in the proposal they get into the more meaty um, issues that actually will have or could have uh, you know significant cause significant differences in uh, prescription drug pricing. But I don't think this is one of those. So okay. that's just my that's my opinion. I don't have uh, I don't have the wealth of knowledge of someone who has you know the thirty forty years of experience in the industry. But uh, from what I've gleaned and from what I read. So. All right. Well, that's fair. Well, then let's not spend too much time, more time on this one. Do you maybe want to pick out one other thing from this section that is kind of interesting or worth bringing up? Um. Yes. So I think the promoting innovation and competition for biologics is one that we don't have to spend too much time talking about because it's kind of obvious, but at the same time is important to note because this is such a new space uh, for pharmaceutical you know for medications that uh it really can and like you're saying these biologics are very pricey and being able to increase allow competition and uh, promoting the innovation of these products this can actually make a significant difference in the you know in terms of uh the actual bottom line because if you think about it um we're talking about high cost drugs and one of the statistics that the proposal actually mentioned was that though these drugs offer a lot of hope because they are now we're now being able to cure or manage you know diseases that we previously could not um, or at least not to the same extent um, this is the one percent of insured beneficiaries who use them they account for 35 to 40 percent of the health plan spending um, and that will only increase to over 50 percent over the next five years so we're talking about you know, a small population that's really driving this prescription drug cost in a in a very significant way, right? Yeah, for sure. So do you have any thoughts on that? Um, no, I mean like this is a so this is maybe like getting into a little bit of my issue with this propo- proposal is it's just it's really vague. Um, you know, just saying measures to promote innovation and competition for biologics but it doesn't spend a lot of time even like going into it getting into the specifics of how it's going to do that i don't think it even spends any time getting into the specifics yeah so i so it's almost kind of just like 
my my hot take on this is it kind of reminds me of maybe reports that we would have put together <laughs> for projects um, where you're <laughs> kind of reminds me of that business plan project we had to do. Um, and it's just like, or even better yet, like our lean six project that we did. Okay. Where it's just like, we had to come up with a, an idea of how to make an improvement or do a thing. And so you would just come up with a really, a thing that sounded really good, but well, not really for, flesh out how to do it. Not to, I guess, bore the listeners, but at least in those projects, we actually proposed actionable items. Whereas here, it's more like they're proposing ideas yeah. without the actionable items behind it, right? Yeah, well, I mean, we had actionable items. But we also, maybe this is another place to draw the comparison. We had actual items, but no way to actually enact them. And that's kind of what this feels like, too. Like, oh, we could do this, but it's just... Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. When, in, you know with what like I mean? A business, when you draw up a business plan for a, a fictitious business there's you know it's a lot of speculation and even here the speculation i don't, wouldn't even i don't even know if i'd qualify as speculation because once again they're not proposing how they're going to change make these changes yeah. so it's not even speculating it's just they're saying what they're going to do they're not saying how they're going to do it right exactly yeah so um i guess moving forward then we get kind of into the better negotiation so what stuck out to you with the better negotiation um so with better negotiation um let's see well i guess kind of just to get into it we've got experimenting with value-based purchasing um allowing more substitution in medicare part d and reforming medicare part d to give plan sponsors more power more negotiating power um, and a few other things most of this section seems to just be like as the name suggests giving Medicare Part D equal bargaining power with the manufacturers to what the plan, the private plans enjoy, which I guess maybe this is my own ignorance. I, I didn't really realize that there was such a discrepancy there. Um, yeah. But apparently there is. You would think that the federal government would have the most bargaining power. And that is kind of what one of the parts of what I was alluding to. And you think of why certain medications are cheaper overseas than they are here is because those medications are negotiated on a single-payer system through the federal government, and they have that negotiating power that mm -hmm. uh, our federal government would actually would have. And this might – some of these proposals – and here they I feel like they actually gave some actual items. You know, For example, they said that um, they wanted to allow Medicare Part C and D to do mid-year substitutions of generics on formulary. So if for any reason a drug, a particular drug produced by a particular company um, had to raise prices for any reason, whether it was, um, you know, uh, warehousing issues or production issues or whatnot, then now Medicare Parts C and D could actually, in the middle of the year, readdress that and uh and basically change their formulary to allow for a cheaper product to take its place mm -hmm. which makes sense that's something that you, you know if you are unfamiliar with the whole process you would think why isn't that already in place to begin with right and then the other one i thought which was pretty good was uh changing the part d plan formulary to uh, or standards to require a minimum of one drug per category uh or class rather than two 
And mm-hmm. that basically, if you think about it, it's uh, when they go to the table to negotiate, they don't have to include a second drug if that drug's going to be too expensive. They just say, you know what, we have one. That's all. That's all required. And uh, we don't. If you're not going to make an attractive offer, we're just not going to include a second drug. Yeah, exactly. Um, it really incentivizes the manufacturers to um, kind of go low on their on their offer. Right. Um, it makes it more of like a buyer's market than a seller's market. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, yeah, so that was, I think that's pretty good for negotiating power. Is there anything else you want to talk yeah. about there? Well, I wanted to talk about the last point, which I didn't mention was the, um, and this is kind of the, I mean, it's in the name and this is like very much like on brand for um, Trump administration policies, but there's the, um, working across the administration to assess the problem of foreign free riding <sighs> which uh, you know is this the idea that other countries are piggybacking off of american um excellence and exceptionalism and um you know what this made me think of in terms of like cheaper drug prices which you went a different way in terms of like some of the healthcare systems that we've talked about that you know, have just grossly different healthcare systems. I was thinking more in terms of countries that have lower um, prescription drug regulation. Um, so, you know, you think about people who go, people who have hepatitis uh, C and go um, overseas to countries where they're able to get like Harvoni for $1,000 as opposed to like $50,000 here, just because. Um, here in America, you're paying for the the cost of um, development and research and all of the FDA approval process that goes into it. Um, and that's kind of what that made me think about. Right. And it's, it you know, we talked about this also in previous episodes, but it is extremely expensive to go through the FDA approval process. And that is, I don't think that this is necessarily uh, was highlighted as much in this report, but in previous um I guess times that whether it was Alex Azar or Scott Gottlieb or President Trump himself, one thing they have mentioned numerous times is trying to expedite the drug approval process and then also making it cheaper for the drug approval process, uh, making it cheaper for generics as well as uh, trying to make it cheaper for branded products as well. Right, right. Which is kind of why I alluded like back to the Right to Try Act and the whole quote-unquote attack on the fda thing which if you want to like get conspiratorial about it almost oh gosh. it all kind of goes hand in hand you know yeah yeah conspiracy zag is here if is. It, you could construct a narrative that makes sense hey zach yeah did we land on the moon uh i yeah i think we did my buddy jeffrey's gonna be very disappointed in that answer <laughs> All right. Although um, it's weird that we've never done it since then. Wow. Conspiracy it's weird. is giving some hot takes right now. I mean, it it's just weird. It's up in the kitchen. It's kind of weird. It's also you expensive think we and probably unnecessary. Why would we do it again? It is. That's true. It's true. But it is interesting. I mean, we're going to get on a tangent here, but the way that like technology advances, mm. you would think it would have gotten a lot cheaper. Unless it was so prohibitively have... expensive back then that it's still... I don't know like... that... that the advancement of technology necessarily means it's going to get cheaper. It just means that we have no. That's better... how technology works. 
really is your phone cheaper than it was when you had a motorola razor no but it's like infinitely more complex like we should be able to make the exact same technology that put us on the moon 50 years ago for a exact huge same technology that got that put us on the moon 50 years ago also failed like four or five times before well okay so but that's the thing you should either be able to keep doing that and it be cheaper or more cost effective or you should have better technology at a comparable or lower price you know I'm just saying it's weird. You, you would think what? if we, the, if you would think that if you went from a Motorola Razor to an iPhone 10 within the span of a decade, that we would at least have slightly better spacecraft at, by this point. We do have better spacecrafts, We're but that doesn't mean them. they're cheaper. I, they should be. We have better phones than our Razors, and they're not less expensive. We no, have they're not. TVs they, than we used to have, and the TVs are, they are generally less, less expensive. expensive. Yeah. They are be- They are less expensive. Okay, fine. Then let's do TV technology. Oh gosh, we're getting off on a tangent. Computer technology. Computers. That's definitely cheaper. Yeah. Well, fine. is it? Well, phones are a different thing because that's a whole like that market is really messed up. So okay. In terms of like, we did talk about that actually on a previous episode too. Yeah, we did. All right. Um, we need to Look get back did. on track. We did. We do. Let's go to the third part. All right. Which is TSOF. Uh, it is incentives for lower list prices. So essentially just like making um, there be uh, better reasons to start off with a drug having a lower list price. Um, and a lot of that's through just like transparency, um, making manufacturers almost include like a, you know, price tag right there on your on your advertisements see i saw and this has been in the news a lot but i think that this was less of an attack on manufacturers and more on pbms and health plans this specific one yeah because when you talk about it like so consumers who have not met their deductible Mm -hmm. um or are subject to a co-insurance of some form or fashion they pay oh i think i see where you're going here yeah what they pay is based on the pharmacy list price which Mm -hmm. is not reduced by the drug manufacturers rebates that are paid to the pharmacy benefit managers and the health plans so as a result although the list prices are going up and there's a widening gap between the list prices and net prices the consumers out-of-pocket spending is actually increasing Mm -hmm. um particularly for these high cost high cost drugs uh that we are seeing now hit the market and they actually had a pretty good graph on this report which i liked that showed the retail net and the retail gross uh increase since 2013 through 2017 and although the two graphs look very similar in increase in terms of their shape you actually notice that the uh that the retail gross price is increasing at the slope of the retail gross price is actually um more dramatic than that of the retail net so this gap is getting is increasing but the people that are getting this money between the gross and the net are actually the pbms and health plans that um that are i don't want to say pocketing the rebates but they're getting the rebates and making use of the rebates how they wish right yeah yeah which like this is definitely the part of the report that gets I think is the hardest to follow 
just in general because the whole system is so confusing and i and that's honestly maybe one of the better parts of this proposal is just increased transparency um it is interesting how much this proposal though does target the pbms well and i think that was also i didn't actually do much reading um aside from the report itself but just from scrolling through linkedin and and other social media avenues, you know, it seemed that everyone's takeaway was that this was an attack on PBMs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know that I would agree that with with that rhetoric that this entire proposal was just that, but this section, to me, read that way, at least. So. Yeah. Um, likewise, I think the only other part with this section that I wanted to touch up on was that this did... And this was actually kind of surprising for me to see, um, was that they, uh, or they, the proposal suggested basically increasing integrity of the 340B program, right? And we mm-hmm. also have talked about that, what the 340B program is in previous episodes. So if you don't know what that is, go go back so we don't have to re-explain it. But um, how did you feel about this, Zach? Or wh- this, explain what they mean by increasing integrity of the 340B program. Yeah, yeah, and just a, just a quick overview so that you don't have to go parse through all our episodes, which you should though. But like the 340B discount program is a is a program that allows certain um, hospitals and, and organizations to buy drugs at a significantly discounted cost, um, with the understanding that the savings on that will be put towards um, helping the patient, lowering costs, um, those kind of things, not not towards profit. Um, and so what that kind of gets at is um, in it's terms for of indigent populations, making sure that that's being, it's for yeah, the yeah, population. yeah, I think indigent populations and yeah, yeah, true, yeah, yeah, it is kind of based on that. Um, yeah, it is based on that. Um, but the the integrity here is just making sure that it is being used in that way that institutions aren't um, pocketing that that excess fund, uh, that excess profit. Um, which is pretty sizable right so it's a sizable discount and basically um some institutions have gotten in trouble for the way that they are using this using this discount because it's not and this is not by any means an umbrella statement for all institutions that participate in the 340b program but um i think that what they were saying is more that some institutions aren't being transparent in how those discounts are actually being applied to the consumers because from a face value, it doesn't look like the consumers are actually getting all of that discount from some institutions. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that was that. Um, I guess that brings us to the last one, right? Right. Yes. Which is um, just really just right out there, lowering out of pocket costs. Um which is maybe the vaguest one of all, I yeah. think. This one was uh this one was definitely vague. It was there was only one part that stuck out to me. Yeah, is it the is it the um pharmacist gag yeah. the pharmacist gag laws? Yeah. Do you want to go ahead and explain that then? Yeah, yeah. So um currently it's um against the law for pharmacists to tell Part D members if it would be cheaper for them to just pay out of pocket rather than to bill a medication to their Medicare Part D, um, which, you know, you might wonder, like, how can that be? 
there I mean there there are a lot of reasons um all has to do with I think like reimbursement and what the pharmacy chooses to like set as their cash price um there there are different variables but there could be multiple uh, episodes to do, on that yeah yeah probably exactly so but like right now that's not allowed and so um that that's a major barrier to like making sure that out-of-pocket costs are as low as possible if you can pay you know cash price and it be five dollars versus the the medicare copay being ten dollars then obviously it makes more sense to just pay the out-of-pocket cost exactly and you know aside from that i didn't honestly gather too much from this section from mm-hmm. the immediate changes so I really don't have much input there aside from what yeah, you Yeah, I don't either. That's just like how are we going to that's just like the 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 most like comical one on there. It's like, okay, how are we going to lower out of pocket costs? Uh well, we're going to lower out of pocket costs. Well, and to me, this should have been tied in with the lowering uh the list prices because by lowering the list prices, since the out of pocket costs are tied to the list prices, you would be doing both in the same action, right? I don't, I just didn't see yeah. why this was its own section so yeah i don't either it could yeah. be a triad not a force one, one thing i did want to i just remembered since this is <laughs> gripping airtime i did have one other thing i want to say about the 340b program that i thought was interesting and in that um, the deep discounts of the 340b program are apparently causing manufacturers to drive their list prices up in order to compensate for that um which is an interesting side effect that i don't think is necessarily intended um, because you're kind of shifting the cost from one population to another, essentially. Which, yeah, absolutely. Generally, I'm okay for sometimes, um, but it is. But it is interesting. the population that you're shifting it to is not the population who should be getting bearing exactly. that burden. It's yeah. not. You know, some people might be able to afford to, you know, um, accept some of that extra cost or absorb it, but it's not. Once again, it's not an umbrella that uh, fits everyone in that population at all. So that is a, I feel like that was an unintended unintended consequence, but uh, I don't know that it was actually foreseen, but now it it needs to be addressed. And it seems like they've at least acknowledged that they want to address it. I don't know that they've acknowledged how they're going to address it. So, right. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's at least the immediate changes that are being proposed by this right to try proposal. Um, do you have any, any other thoughts on this Zach? I don't think this is going to go anywhere. <laughs> All right. Um, do you want to go to last thoughts? Yeah, let's go to last thoughts. All right, Zach, um, hit me. Okay. Um, so, um, Maddie and I, um, or my wife and I um, started have started running a lot more. You need to start referring um, to her as Maddie, my wife. Maddie, my wife. Okay. Um, now that's really funny. On one of the other podcasts I do, we have like a running joke where anytime someone says my wife, we immediately follow it up with the Borat voice, my wife. Oh, um, I don't even want to know what that sounds like. Every single time, um, my wife. Oh, um, Jesus. Um, yeah, we started running because we live pretty close to like a big park with a like lots of running tracks and stuff, and it's just like oh, we should be more healthy. The weather's nice. We should be more active. Um, but an un 
intended side effect of this is that i have like started playing pokemon go again like crazy um because like <laughs> this there's, is like, not going where i five, thought it was gonna go there are like four or five gems back there and like a ton of stuff and so i've been getting back into it and man it's like so much fun now um i really kind of like I played when it first came out and got really bored with it because, like, I lived in, a, like, an area of town that didn't have anything, really, and I, I just, like, it wasn't very fun. It was super buggy, but now they've, like, added all of these incentives and stuff, like, these goals and things, and, and oh, man, it's so much fun now. It's r- ridiculously addictive. What are you going to do I, when like, the Harry Potter version comes out? I will try to make Maddie download that so she has something to do when I'm running around caching, um fake little creature monsters it's always funny because she's like oh look there's a rabbit in real life and i'm like oh well i'm sorry i'm trying to catch this um little dragon thing this little dragon thing um i'm being highly technical i'm like trying to not show like how how (laughs) how deep the rabbit well i will say that uh i i also played it when it first came out it was super fun when it came out it was buggy i also dropped it out of boredom but it's way better now. I like highly recommend. It's a battery you killer on your phone, though. Enjoyed it. It is. It definitely is. Um, I have to like make sure my phone is like 100% charged before I go out. Um, but look at it incentivizing you to get some exercise. It is. It's like really great. That was kind of like the I, biggest harp on like when because uh, they put gyms around like local landmarks. Uh-huh. And so it made people actually start like going to like museums and to like the statue and to like this yeah. plaque and stuff like that. Yeah, no joke. Like one time I went out, um, like when it first came out, and I found, um, you know, for reference, I live in Kentucky. Horses are really important here. I found this like really creepy, but kind of cool horse graveyard that had all of these like, you know, like prestigious racehorses, and their gravestones were laid out in the shape of a horseshoe. <laughs> Oh, that's crazy. Uh, it was so weird and i never would have found it if i hadn't just been like randomly walking around trying to catch pokemon well they need to make more video games that make you go outside zach so you can get some get some of that fresh air that vitamin D. it is it is really great and also like one interesting little side note to like tap onto that economically i was um reading up some stuff about um the the like um I guess like the yearly sales for um, the the Pokemon company, the company that like is in charge of you know holds the rights and everything. Um, they're like year yearly sales, and it's like most years like if they don't put out a game, they would make like you know one to five million dollars in a year. If they put out a, a game, they may, maybe would make like eight to fifteen thousand. I mean, eight to fifteen million in a year. <laughs> they could buy a um, Kia with the eight to fifteen. Yeah, 000. right, right. No, eight to fifteen million. But then the year that Pokemon Go came out, they made a hundred and forty-five million. That's crazy because I it remember when that came out, a lot of people were saying that they never like Twitter. They had never found uh-huh. a way or Snapchat that uh, Pokemon Go hadn't found a way to monetize itself well. So that's that's uh that's good to hear because that I guarantee you that is part of the motivation for why this new Harry Potter um, uh-huh. parallel is going to come out too. Because yeah. that shows that they clearly did find one way to monetize it at least. Yeah, so. it's like crazy. Like it's now just like far and away their bread and butter. Um, even so much so they 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 like just announced a new um, like mainline game coming out on the Switch, and it has like really heavy tie-ins to go and like incorporates a lot of stuff. So 
it's uh it's pretty crazy um i just had no like a hundred that's like a what one thousand percent increase from like year over year um well, also i saw, feel like that's unheard of i also saw that some uh like some local establishments would take advantage of pokemon go by basically yeah, that was a really cool phenomenon too, yeah so like a bar on, yeah. could pay the company to put a gym in their restaurant or in their bar mm -hmm. to attract people to come in and basically just while they have a few drinks or have some apps to battle it out and so it mm -hmm. increased revenue for you know some of the local establishments as well which i thought yeah. was a pretty cool also unintended consequence which might be the motif of this episode maybe um, yeah yeah i don't think it'll ever like get back to like the crazy hype that it had when it first came out but i think when harry they Potter do comes cool out things like every once in a while maybe yeah that might like bring it back out but they do cool things like um like once a month they have a like a community day where they have like a lot of special incentives to try to get people to go out and from, from what i've read at least like in bigger cities um when those happen like the turnouts are still really crazy even a nice. couple of years in so i had not heard anyone talk about that and probably over a year so that's cool yeah um yeah well for my last thought i'm gonna keep it short and sweet since this one was a little longer and uh i am currently a preceptor i'm less than a year out of pharmacy school and i have my first student i'm about halfway through i just did the midpoint evaluation with her and it has been an absolutely positive 100 percent experience it's been extremely rewarding I honestly wasn't sure what to expect because I knew when I went into my industry rotations, it was something that I was passionate about from the get-go. So I really wasn't sure to expect from uh, students that might not be as gung-ho about uh, you know exploring the pharmaceutical industry as I was. And I will say that uh, it has been you know extremely rewarding. And for anybody, whether you're in the health uh, whether you're in the healthcare field or in another field that offers opportunities like this, whether it's an internship or whatnot, um, you know, take advantage of it, explore it. I think that there's a lot, uh, a, I mean, let's be honest, uh, she helps me get some work done and B she, it's just, it's great to get to kind of, um, bestow some of the knowledge I've gained, but also share some of my enthusiasm and see if I can get that to make that contagious with my students as well for my field, because I really enjoy what I do and I want people to uh, have an appreciation and understanding for it as well. well look at you. Just yeah. Improving people's lives, Important. being a good role model. I know. Who would have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? That's, right. that's definitely Anthony. That's not Marty speaking. <laughs> oh, that's a deep cut. Yep. Yep. It's uh you're gonna have to go back to like episode one or two to figure that what that meant out. Figure out what that meant. There we go. I what that meant out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just like see chill. Um, all right. So that's our episode. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh I think there was a lot to gain here. If you all have any questions, obviously reach out to us. Um, or just read the report or the proposal or about the right triact yourselves. And with that being said, I think it is time for some lazy Sunday. Yeah.